Hello everyone. Welcome to Under the Wire. I'm coming to you live from the Sunshine Coast and I'm here with Greg Beatty, who is the author of Fooling Ourselves on the Fundamental Value of Vaccines. Um, I spoke with Greg a few weeks ago on the program and there was a great response to that show and people wanted to know more information especially about smallpox and polio which uh, Greg has studied quite a bit over the years. So we're bringing you part two today of our conversation with Greg Beatty and I will just allow Greg to introduce the subject to us and why he thinks that we need to be looking at this issue uh, in a certain way that we're really not looking at it right now. Okay, thanks Meryl. Uh, yeah, I think what's important uh, strategy-wise uh, for people on our side of the fence, so to speak, is that we address the concerns of well, the motivations of the people who are pushing vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, because they're getting very angry with us, we're getting very angry with them. There's a great war going on, and, and actually there's an analogy I'll talk about in a little while, the war analogy. But uh, we seem to be avoiding the main things that are motivating them. Uh, and I call, in part one of our interview, we, I called it the yes but response. Um, that is when the other side says, look, vaccines are saving lives, they've, they've pulled us away from the, the dark ages where, where children are drop, dropping like flies. And our typical response has been, yes, but they also have some problems. And that's not a great response. Now, some people, I've had some feedback since part one, uh, people, uh, most of it's been positive, but some people have said, look, oh, I don't know anyone who uses the, the yes, but response, but... The fact is we all do, we all tend to. Um, it, sometimes the yes is silent and the but is silent. <laughs> but by not addressing what they're saying, first and foremost, uh, we're giving what I call a yes but response. Uh, now, that's why we're in, a, in this war situation. Um, and if we, if we think about wars and we've got soldiers at a battle line who are... Uh, desperately firing bullets at this unseen enemy and throwing grenades at them. Uh, what they're doing is something they really believe in. And, yes. and if some anti-war protesters come up to them and say, hey, listen, don't you know that while you're doing all this, you're accidentally killing a few people too on your own side with fr friendly fire? And their response is going to be, are you kidding? I'm saving humanity. But, it, you know, I, I'm doing the best I possibly can. If, I, if I've killed 10 people, I'm really, really sorry, but I've just saved 990. So that's their, that's their attitude. Exactly. And while, as we know, all wars are, are based on propaganda. If we can get an army of people to really believe that what they're doing is fighting a real enemy, uh, their fight is a good fight and that they will win, then you've got a willing army. And once you've got a population on side as well to support them, you can go and fight a war. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's a great thing to do, but, but that's how it works. And so these people fighting the war really believe in what they're doing and we're not addressing their, their core beliefs. Uh, a typical response we have is, but um, we'll, we'll say, but what if it was your child who, who was harmed? And while that's a perfectly valid question to ask, uh, a very important question to ask, it doesn't help us win the argument. Right. Because it doesn't address their concerns. I mean, those soldiers are aware that there's such a thing as friendly fire. And they're aware that children are being harmed by vaccines. They, they might dispute how often that occurs. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there'd be a person on the planet who would pretend to themselves that vaccines are not harming children. So, yeah, that's, that's what I want to talk about right. today. We started talking about it uh, in our last interview, yeah. but we didn't cover polio and smallpox. No, and those are important issues. And it's, it's well, a lot of people think of it as the weak point on this whole subject because when you bring up... 
um, the other graphs that you've got talking about these diseases and showing that the deaths had declined well before the vaccines came in, people always bring up, but what about polio and what about smallpox? So I think it's really important to give people those tools also. And what you're talking about, when people are looking at the risk-benefit ratio, the people who are pro-vaccine are going to say, well, that risk to those few people is something that we do for the greater good. Exactly. And so explaining to them why that isn't necessarily the case and that they need to look at it in a different way is very important, mm -hmm. I think. That greater good argument is a good argument. Mm -hmm. We may not like it, uh, but it is a great argument because if you do this much great and is that this much harm, well, it's it's a good thing to do. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. would you like to recap on the graphs briefly sure. from part one, just yeah. to remind people of those people who didn't see them? No problem. If, if we flip to the first graph, this, these are Australian data, and uh, we, we can see here that uh, the death rate from whooping cough decreased uh, significantly before the vaccine was even brought in. Mm. So, um, the next graph, if we just flip quickly to it is diphtheria. Sorry. <laughs> okay, there we go. Okay. Same story. Diphtheria death rate declined dramatically and substantially before the vaccine even arrived. That's what I was saying before. In the, in the war analogy, uh, the propaganda that we need to address, we need to say, hey, there is no enemy. It's not just an unseen enemy. There is no enemy. There is no war. Mm -hmm. There was an enemy at one stage, but the enemy died off of natural causes well before we even assembled an army. Right. Okay. Right. So that's what these graphs show. If we flip to the next one, mm -hmm. now I won't, I'm not spending a lot of time on these graphs because I, I did that in part one. And if you want to go back and have a listen to that, that... Uh, uh, that will fill you out a little bit more. Did we already look at this one? We looked at Sorry. We haven't seen measles yet, Measles, here we go. We started yeah. halfway through. You're right. Now I'm have a look at that thinking. one. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got a death rate that, that came almost down to zero. Uh, not zero deaths, mind you, but a death rate. That is deaths per 100,000 population. That's right. As you can see, the war was practically over before the vaccine came along. So those graphs, the what they teach us is that the vaccine effort was largely irrelevant mm. in, in defeating these diseases. The next couple of graphs show us, take us a little bit further. Here, here we, we, yeah, we compare measles with scarlet fever. And the purpose of this comparison is to show you that there was another illness that disappeared at the same time, scarlet fever, and we have no problem with it at the moment too. Next graph shows a similar story. With uh, It compares whooping cough and typhoid fever. Once again, a similar story. And if you want to look at these in more detail, go back to part one that we had a few weeks ago. What these two graphs show you is the vaccine effort was probably largely what uh, was actually completely irrelevant mm -hmm. because other diseases were declining and disappearing at the same time. They didn't have a vaccine. So if we introduce a vaccine for one disease and all the others disappeared, declined and disappeared, uh, why would we credit that one disease that we introduced a vaccine for, what would we credit the vaccine for its disappearance? And why would we even introduce a vaccine if we look at um, the DTP vaccine that was uh, made, not compulsory, but was added to the schedule in 1953, at that time the death rate from whooping cough, and there was virtually no diphtheria, and tetanus has always been vanishingly rare, but whooping cough was the main disease that I think was being targeted here, and there were so few deaths from whooping cough at the time this was added to the schedule. We have to wonder why the vaccine was even added to the schedule in the first place, um, and why our, our medical historians are teaching that that vaccine was actually the reason why we saw the decline in deaths, and they talk about incidents when they don't even have figures for incidents. Um, so yeah, propaganda. Like we go back to that war analogy. Um, there is 
so much propaganda around this issue and so little science and now we're not even allowed to discuss it uh, publicly without being attacked so yeah, yeah. okay uh, a lot of people will respond to this by saying uh, this is pro-vaccine people will respond by saying oh yeah but what about the underdeveloped countries you know they're still killing thousands of people over there so if we take a look at africa we can see uh, and mind you there is not good data in underdeveloped countries cause of death data is is terrible uh, all we can do is uh, have a look at regular surveys they do on death rates and if we have a look at this graph here from africa we can see the thick line through the middle shows the under five mortality rate from 1960 onwards and we can see that there's not much of a deviation in that uh, as, as we travel through that time period. However, the fine lines that shoot up from 1980 onwards, they show how we suddenly introduced mass vaccination into, this, into the, the countries of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and they made no difference to the death rates. Uh, next graph. Can I just yeah, sure. uh, point out here, because I find this graph a little bit confusing, that line that goes up is actually vaccination rate against those diseases, right? So the, the vaccination rate goes up, but there's no change in the slope uh, of the mortality from uh, diseases, under five mortality. Um, and the other line that's dotted is polio. Oh, no, sorry, the other line that's dotted underneath. Was the infant mortality. Infant right? mortality. Okay, so under five mortality and infant mortality, there is no effect with the increasing level of vaccination. So I just wanted to yeah. point that out. Yeah. No observable impact mm. made by vaccination. Right. And, and from what we've been told, to go from zero up to these high vaccination rates, they should have made a remarkable difference yeah. in the death rates. We're told that it, it saves 90% of the prevents 90% of, of the deaths. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if we flip to India next, uh, similar story. As I said, we did go over these in more detail in the previous um, show. There we go. Okay. India, same story. Only the, a couple of different data points, <laughs> but uh, as you can see, basically the same story. We introduced vaccination in a big hurry over a decade or so. It made no observable impact on mortality rates yeah. whatsoever. I would love to see this graph expanded up to 2017 or 2018 because I know that the deaths from polio increased substantially. They had, I think, over 62,000 deaths from polio in 2015 and more than that, I don't remember exactly how many, it might have been over 80,000 the next year, which was the highest number of deaths they've ever had. They called it non-polio, but um, it was mostly children under the age of five who were affected, and I think we would see an increase in the death rates, but I'm not sure. I would like to see that. Yeah, yeah I'll talk about polio in a short while. Okay. Um, Sorry, I just realized I did not share <laughs> that graph on the screen. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> this, yeah. is what, this is what Greg was talking about. <laughs> My okay. apologies for that. <laughs> there we have India. <laughs> we talked about it, but you couldn't see it. Now you can see it. We're finished talking about it. <laughs> now, a lot of people uh, will say, look, it's been proven that uh, measles vaccination, for example, has prevented 12 million deaths or whatever in the last, mm -hmm. in the last decade. And that's simply not true. But if you look into that, uh, I discussed this in our last interview, mm -hmm. Um, look into that, you'll find that all those figures are, are made up on a spreadsheet. I know it sounds ridiculous to say they're made up on a spreadsheet, but they're made up on a spreadsheet. Yeah. It's simply a formula. That's they it. have not counted the measles deaths in underdeveloped countries. Simple story. So they're lying to us. Again, it's propaganda. Propaganda. Simply to push vaccines mm. and to make people afraid. Um, we talked about that a lot last night in the Vax2 screening. Everybody was talking about how they only vaccinated because they were made so afraid of the disease. And it wasn't until they saw these reactions in their own family that they thought, maybe I should be more afraid of the vaccines. Mm. And, um, yeah, it is. There's so much propaganda. And it's terrible when it becomes fear versus fear, which yes. fear is the greatest. That's why I say it's very important that we address this propaganda mm. because... There, in this day and age, there really is, without vaccines, 
as far as the data is concerned, there really is no reason to fear not vaccinated. No reason to fear these diseases. That's it. Uh, okay, so with that, we should move on to smallpox and polio. Okay. If we flick to the next graph, okay, I want to, to explain a little bit about that. Now, this is a great graph uh, plotted, by, up with you. There we go. plotted by Roman Bistrianek. Now, he's the co-author with Suzanne Humphreys of Dissolving Illusions, which is a great book. It is. It's one of my favourites, yeah. He's plotted a lot of graphs. This one here he allowed me to use in my book. Thank you very much, Roman. Uh, shows smallpox mortality plotted uh, alongside scarlet fever mortality. Now, I'll explain why later. But first of all, what I want to say is the smallpox mortality was basically the same story as all the other graphs we just saw. That is, it used to be very high and it petered away, declined, and eventually disappeared, just like all the other graphs. The only difference was, instead of having the vaccination arrow down on the bottom right-hand corner saying vaccination started here, with smallpox we had it up in the top left-hand corner saying vaccination started here. And so that allowed the propagandists to declare, we got rid of smallpox with this vaccine. However, this graph is really good because what it shows is that, in fact, all other infectious diseases declined during this period as well, in unison with smallpox. But here we've got one example, scarlet fever. Now, scarlet fever is the, the heavier black line along the top. Okay, now there's lots of peaks and troughs, as you can see. It might be a bit difficult to, to read straight away. Scarlet fever is the lower line which is uh, not quite as bolded. Mm. And you can see they both declined at the same time. Scarlet fever didn't have a vaccine. Smallpox did. So why would any rational thinking person say the vaccine was what got rid of smallpox? We don't know what got rid of scarlet fever. <laughs> they mirror each other almost exactly. Mm -hmm. um, the peaks and the troughs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And many scientists over the years have analysed the, the smallpox situation and, and said, look, there is no decent data uh, to indicate that, that the vaccine got rid of smallpox. No. Now, one, one of them being Alfred Russell Wallace, who's one of the, the towering scientists of the last few hundred years, the co-discoverer of the theory of uh, evolution by natural selection with Charles Darwin. Uh, very highly respected scientist. He was dead against smallpox vaccination. He said that, that there's no data that shows its utility whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Another um, big figure was uh, Creighton, Charles Creighton, uh, known as the father of epi epidemiology, a very highly respected epidemiologist. Uh, he used to write the, the section on, in Encyclopedia Britannica on smallpox. He was dead against the vaccine. So mm -hmm. Doesn't it doesn't help anyway? There's, there's a lot to be read about smallpox, and I suggest to everyone that you, you go and look it up if you want to fill in the gaps. Yeah. But basically, the message here is smallpox declined just like all the other diseases at the same time as all the other diseases, and it happened at a time when access to nutritious foods was being improved. I mean, before that we used to live in cities, overcrowded cities that just did not have the infrastructure to deliver good nutritious food to people and didn't have the infrastructure to cart away the wastes properly. We had terrible problems with the Industrial Revolution, with disease. Um, yeah, that's one thing that I think I got from Dissolving Illusions was the background of the living conditions at the time in England, which is where a lot of this information comes from in Great Britain, you know, England and Wales and Scotland and all those places, children as young as five and six working in the mines for 12 hours a day, 
um, you know, basically living in dirt. They had open sewers. It's like the situation you'd see in a third world country now mm. was what England was like at the time. Uh, no good food, no light. These children were living in horrible conditions. They were dying from so many things. Smallpox was the least of their problems. But then you vaccinated these children against smallpox. They were already stressed and they would die from the vaccine within a very short time as well. So there was a huge death rate immediately following vaccination campaigns in these areas and the rich people were able to pay the fine to actually not allow their children to be vaccinated against smallpox but the poor people were forced to and a lot of people went to prison because they didn't want to vaccinate their children so yeah one of the little known facts about vaccination in in england which is you know where they've got great data uh it was it, it was enforced just before the biggest epidemic they, they ever had. The biggest epidemic on record was in 1871 and 72. And about five years before that, they introduced this really stringent law, compulsory vaccination law, uh, that, that enforced it. And you can see that on this graph, the, the huge uptick yeah. in uh, smallpox right after that. Yeah. Yeah. Biggest, biggest one on record. And, and not many people are aware of that. So, so the, the message here is vaccination naturally, I'm sorry, smallpox naturally declined and disappeared, uh, just like all other diseases mm -hmm. did. And there is no robust evidence, no robust case you can make to, to say that it was caused by vaccination. Mm -hmm. I have a question, and you may not be able to answer it, but it's one thing that I've always wondered. Um, with smallpox, they had variola major and variola minor. Major had the worst symptoms, minor had milder symptoms. And I've always wondered if variola minor could have been chickenpox. Well, that was a common <laughs> confusion. I mean, that mild cases of smallpox were always confused with chickenpox which is what prompted Sir William Osler, who was like um, one of the highest ranking medical men of the time, to write to, to he wrote an article saying, look, the first thing to look for when, when you're considering diagnosing smallpox is the vaccinal condition of the patient. How to differentiate between smallpox and chickenpox? He said, look for vaccination scar. That's, how he, that's the first step in differentiating those two illnesses. He said because they appear identical. So if they had a vaccination scar, it would be diagnosed as chickenpox. Hmm. And or something if, else. Yeah. Okay. So Probably chickenpox. Have we wiped out smallpox? Or is chickenpox simply smallpox in a healthier person? Well, it's interesting because that, that goes to what we're going to talk about with polio. But how do you count things? How do you count how many cases of smallpox there used to be and how many there are now? Because in the old days, they didn't test people for viruses. They couldn't. They couldn't. They didn't have the, the technology. That's right. Yeah. So if someone had a, a, a pox disease uh, and it was bad enough and there was smallpox going around, you got smallpox. Hmm. That's how they made their decisions back then. That's right. And we're going to talk about that with polio very shortly. How do you count these things? Because these days you, no, no doctor is allowed to say, hey, that's a case of smallpox there. It has to be... Uh, ratified by laboratories, it has to be passed through expert panels. That's right. So we've changed the yardstick by which we measure these diseases, but the diseases may not have changed themselves. So again, propaganda, not science, not anything dealing with reality. It's simply what someone else has decided to call it. And, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that brings us to polio. Okay. That? Let's move to polio. <laughs> Hang on one second, and I will just one. get polio. Oh, I think I skipped the first graph. Hang on one second. That's all right. We won't. No, we won't show the graph yet. I, oh, okay. Let, cool. We'll talk. I just want to explain. The claim is that lots and lots of people used to get paralysed by polio, mm -hmm. and they don't anymore. We did that with vaccination. And in order to make that claim, you have to show how you used to count these things. Like if you were to say we're getting rid of dogs, you know, we, we used to have 50,000 dogs back in the year such and such and we have only 2,000 now. We would say we used to count a dog as being a furry animal with four legs and, you know, and teeth. 
now we still use the same way of counting them. So therefore our data is valid. Um, well, with polio, these days, to have a case of polio, I mean, a doctor can't diagnose it. Uh, it, must, it must be diagnosed in a laboratory, mm -hmm. uh, a special polio reference laboratory too, and it must pass through the hands of an expert review panel Excellent. to make sure that it is a case of polio. Right. Now, that's vastly different to the old days, just before the vaccine came in, when any doctor could diagnose polio, and they frequently did. And they would walk into a patient to see a patient, and five minutes later come out and say, he's got polio. And that was it. That's another stat. And that explains why we have this bizarre situation now where India, in 2012, celebrated its first year of zero polio cases. <laughs> and in the same year, had more than 60,000 cases of an illness that we used to describe as polio. That would have been counted as polio mm. 50 years ago, but today, because of the way we count polio cases, is not called polio. So we ended up with zero. Now that's bizarre. So on paper, we won the war. That's right. Yeah, but in actuality, that battle is raging. Mm. Yeah. And if you think about it, you can get rid of anything that way. You can, mm. you, you can come up with great propaganda. Um, statistics is something that really can be manipulated. Right. Uh, if you wanted to say, let's get rid of cars, for example, uh, over the next 10 years, you can say, okay, well, let's count all the cars on the road today and they come up with a figure and then next year you might change the definition of a car say well look it's, it's not a truck it must be under a certain weight it must have four wheels so no motorbikes um no rickshaws no tri vehicles tri wheeled vehicles and all of a sudden you've got half the number of cars on the road well we're getting rid of cars and then the next year you might say well look we're going to do something really drastic here it has to be a Ford because they were the original cars. So it has to be a Ford to be counted as a car now. And so the following year, the count would come right down and and everyone would be talking Success. about how you got rid of cars. <laughs> incredible. These people are wonderful. They got rid of cars. The following year, you say, well, it must be a Ford that was manufactured after 1990 because we don't want to count those old Fords, you know, get rid of them. And then the following year, you say, no, we'll change it to the year 2010. Anything manufactured before 2010, we won't call a car. Hey, presto, you're getting rid of cars. Yeah. Now, that sounds ridiculous, and we can all see that. But that's what was done with polio. That's why they can get away with saying, we've conquered polio. We, you know, we used to have X number of cases, and now we have only a couple. Right. That's how they did it. And if we flip to this next graph, I want to show it in action. Okay, before we do that, I just want to say I've been reading the comments and it looks like people are having trouble hearing us. Um, there is an internet problem. I'm aware of it. I believe when we finish the broadcast and I take it, uh, save it to Facebook, that that problem will be fixed. So I do apologize for these issues, but I think they'll be fixed uh, after we finish the broadcast. So stick with us and you should be able to hear it clearly and view it clearly later on. Okay, and we're going to move to the next graph, which is, is it India? Yeah. Okay, hang on one second. I'm just going to make that full screen and then I will but share that sound it. problem happened last time too, I, I don't think it's just sound. It's The broadcast is being interrupted. I, I can see it's jerky here. So, yeah, I think it is internet. I don't it, think it's it, so much it sound. It's you, Greg. It's your your energy. I'm your energy is just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're interrupting the internet. That's how powerful you are. <laughs> okay. So tell us about this graph. Yeah, polio is great because they actually have documented the way that they they changed the way they count polio cases and probably unwittingly documented it, but that's okay. We get <laughs> Everyone to tell makes the story. mistakes. <laughs> yeah. 
the new the 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 old definition, sorry, of polio was acute flaccid paralysis, and the World Health Organization still gives the case definition, uh, the clinical case definition that is of polio as acute flaccid paralysis. In other words, a flaccid paralysis that comes, which is a floppy paralysis, that comes on acutely uh, as an illness. Now. As I said, they've whittled the numbers down by getting laboratory confirmations and, and all sorts of other restrictive definitions. If we look at this graph, we can see what happened in India. The dotted line on the left shows the, forget the other line, forget the line on the right, the dotted line that starts high on the left and goes through and peters out to almost zero on the right is the polio count. And you can see that over the years, as the definition of polio in India was changed, and as they introduced polio reference laboratories there to weed out the non-polio polio cases, if that makes <laughs> sense to you, uh, you can see that the numbers, the count of polio cases each year declined. Now, we move to the thick black line the solid line that starts about 1996, where the World Health Organization started counting the number of acute flaccid paralysis cases. Now remember this was the definition of polio before. They started counting and it took a while for them to get the system in place, but over the years it, it improved until they got up to the stage where you see in the late 2000s there the count is back to the same height <laughs> as the original polio count. Mm, real success. So, and a lot of people say, well, okay, that's the story the data tells, but, but that's not how it happened. I mean, people used to be paralysed left, right and centre 50 or 60 years ago, and you don't see that anymore. And the answer to that is, that's not true. Mm. There were not that many people paralysed a long time ago. And if, if you look at the um, acute flaccid paralysis rate in the world today, it's roughly similar to the polio case rate that we had 50, 60 years ago before the vaccine. That's right, just because we're not calling it polio and we're not using iron lungs anymore. So people think of the iron lung and associate it with polio, but... We use different technology now, so we see people on respirators, we see people in wheelchairs with um, oxygen tubes put up their nose. Those are people who probably would have been, I mean, that would have, might have been the, the treatment for polio if it happened today. And, um, That's right. Yeah. The, the iron lung didn't disappear because polio disappeared. No. I mean, the illness, the, the paralytic illness is still here, so you, theoretically you'd still need an iron lung if, if that was the technology they still use, but the technology was simply superseded, as you said. That's right. And there is, I cannot remember who it was, there was someone in the United States, because there was all this talk, there's a picture that I think everybody knows, it's an iconic picture of a ward in a hospital filled with iron lungs. And that's shown everywhere as evidence that at that time in the 1940s and 50s, hospital wards were completely filled with iron lungs. And someone went back, I don't remember who it was, and they looked up how many iron lungs had ever been manufactured in the United States. And it was about 1,200 iron lungs in existence at any one time in the United States. So. The, that picture is being used as propaganda to try and make it seem like polio was an overwhelming problem that was affecting millions of children, and that was never the case. And I have to say that if anybody's interested in the history of polio in the United States from the time that it was first diagnosed to uh, the present day, the book The Moth and the Iron Lung by Forrest Moretti is a brilliant look at that history and if you read that book you will totally be disabused of your ideas regarding polio and how it started and how it finished. I like that word, disabused. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah an iron lung used to cost roughly the same as a house. Wow. So not many people could afford them. No, yeah. no, that's it. And they, make, they did make 
uh, decisions based on who they thought was going to survive. If you couldn't survive, uh, they wouldn't put you in the iron lung. You would just die of suffocation, which is a terrible death. But, um, yeah, they, they rationalized who they would do. And a lot of girls were not put in iron lungs because in certain hospitals, boys were considered more important. So, yeah, yeah, there were, there were decisions made like that because hospitals may have only had two or three iron lungs mm -hmm. and they might have had more than that. Yeah, some decisions. Yeah, That's, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, it's pretty. And those sorts of decisions are still made today mm -hmm. about different things, not polio, but, yeah. Hospitals make decisions all the time about who's going to live and die. Um, and that's a, another story. <laughs> that's the death squads in the UK hospitals. And Yeah. 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 If, if you walk around today and take a look at people, mm. you'll see there are still people who have problems with uh, paralysis, partial, and... Uh, we give them different names. A whole range of names we give them. We don't call them polio anymore. But most of them, I mean, a lot of them, look like typical polio cases yes. that uh, in the old days we would have called polio. Mm -hmm. um, and if you ask people who lived in that era before the vaccine, like I, I've asked my father, for example, what do you recall any polio cases? And, and he can only recall one, maybe two that he saw right. in his life when he was younger. Um, it was an extremely rare condition. Uh, the case rate each year was about five per 100,000. Right. So, right. you know, that's, that's a very rare condition. And on top of that, uh, getting back to how did we count the cases, well, back before the vaccine, there were a lot of people who were counted as a polio case who didn't have any paralysis whatsoever. In fact, it was quite common in the United States, it's accepted that roughly half of the polio diagnoses back then didn't involve any paralysis. They just happened to be people who had a mild flu-like illness at a time when polio season was on right. and there were other polio cases. Yeah. So they were included in the count. And there's various types of insurance money available to people who were included in that count. Um, in other words, who were given a diagnosis of polio. So it was a, if your doctor diagnosed you with polio, he's doing you a favor. Because mm, you could get money for that. And That's it literally, interesting. And it literally was a, a very <laughs> simple process to diagnose someone with polio. Mm. I remember seeing a, a pro-vaccine documentary a few years back now, I think it might have been jabbed, where they had this little clip of a, a doctor from many years ago walking into the bedroom of a, a patient who was doing a house visit, and about 20 seconds later walking out, shutting the door and saying to the mother, he's got polio. That was it, end of story. <laughs> oh, That's how they can best. Yeah. <laughs> There's no science in this at all. Um, yeah, none at all. No. And if the, if the figures before the vaccination were inflated, um, the figures after the vaccination were seriously deflated based on the criteria from before the vaccination because the whole, um, the way that they diagnosed polio completely changed. So what would have been polio a week ago, if you had been vaccinated and got the same symptoms, would no longer be polio. Yeah. And uh, if your polio resolved within a certain, if your paralysis resolved within a certain amount of time, it was no longer polio. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, they rewrote the rule books in order to make the vaccine look more effective. And there's a classic example of that here in Australia. I mean, this was all documented. It was all open. This is not some conspiracy theory that I've dreamed up. It's all documented in the medical journals. Uh, in Australia, the classic example was July 1956, the Medical Journal of Australia. Now, what was special about July 1956? That was the month that the vaccine was introduced to Australia, the first polio vaccine. And in that issue, July 1956 issue of the Australian Medical Journal, the Medical Journal of Australia, was an article from the government about how to diagnose polio. And it actually said, look, polio season is just about on us again, and we've got a vaccine here, so 
to avoid unwarranted criticism of the vaccine, we want to issue these guidelines to make sure that you're not counting polio cases in those who've been vaccinated unless they really, 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 really have polio. So you better start checking. We recommend you do laboratory tests. You do this, this and that. And back then, they didn't have the special polio reference laboratories. They used to do lumbar punctures and Oof. all sorts of other tests. Wow. And How traumatic. And just a few years after that, they introduced a, a, an expert committee. So if you want to, they said, if you want to diagnose polio from now on, even after doing your lab tests and everything, gather all your evidence and send it off to this review committee. You can't just record a case of polio anymore. Not polio. We not will polio. review them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not allowed, not allowed, not allowed, not allowed. I'll have to let that one through. Yeah. That's how it was done. And it's, it's a similar story with, with smallpox, as you were pointing out before. Mm -hmm. you know, variola major and variola minor. For those who don't know, variola was the name of the smallpox virus. And because some people seem to have the disease really bad, you know, they would either die or they'd have an extremely severe case of it, and other people would get away with a fairly mild case of smallpox, they, they started saying, well, there must be two different viruses. And we'll call them variola major and variola minor. And no one was tested for these viruses because they didn't have the technology for it. So just whenever someone had a, a mild case of smallpox, they would call it variola minor. And when someone had a major case, they'd call it variola minor. Uh, major, sorry. And uh, chickenpox was, a, was a, yeah, a real sort of spanner in the works there because they, they looked identical to the doctors. And Maybe they are. And that's when, <laughs> when William Osler, Sir William Osler, had to step in and say, well, look, these are the guidelines. If you get someone and you can't tell the difference, you don't know whether to call it smallpox or chickenpox, which is very commonly the case these days, he said, um, look for the vaccination scar. Yeah. That tells you how to record it. And so, yeah. That's what we call self-fulfilling prophecy yes and and i do want to point out to people who may not know about the history of smallpox vaccination that we have no idea in the early days and i'm talking about from the late 1700s until about 1860 1870 smallpox vaccination was not a needle in the arm um smallpox vaccination was you had a child or an adult who had recently been vaccinated and they were required by law to appear before the hygiene committee in their area. And they would, with a lancet, which is a, a knife, they would find where the vaccination had been, they would scrape off the pus that had formed around the wound, and then they would take all these other children and adults who are yet to be vaccinated, they would use the lancet to make uh, cuts in their arm, and they would spread the pus from one person to the other, and that was how you were vaccinated. If a doctor were to do this today, they would be in prison. But this is what supposedly wiped out smallpox. It spread tuberculosis. It spread venereal diseases. There were children coming down with gonorrhea and syphilis after this vaccination. Um, it caused so much death and disability. And nobody really knows what was in that vaccination because all they did was they took diseased material from one person and spread it to another. And there was no control. There was no nothing. And even when it came to the point where they actually had laboratories that would make smallpox vaccination, nobody really knows what was in that vial. There was no refrigeration. There was nothing. It was just disease junk that was in there, and they were injecting that directly into people. How anyone survived that, I don't know. But the evidence shows clearly that when there were vaccination campaigns, they were followed very, in very short order by increased death and oh, disability. Yeah. That's for sure. The nasty stuff. Yeah. Nasty, vile disgusting stuff that mm -hmm. no one would ever think of using in, no. in, in this day and age. No. And, and not only that, but the method of, uh, that in the early days, the method of, like when they had to take it from England 
over to other countries like in America by arm-to-arm vaccination of orphans. <laughs> they put a bunch of orphans on the, on the boat and on the long journey across, they'd sustain this vaccine by arm-to-arm vaccination of orphans. And the medical ethics have not changed one little bit because today we are still experimenting on orphans and we are experimenting really? on people in... De- oh, yes. And we are experimenting on people in developing countries. There are orphanages in all over the world, in Indonesia, in, um, in places like you know, sub-Saharan Africa, where they are using orphans to test new drugs and new vaccines for their own good. You know, because they, they can't afford it, so they'll they'll be the first ones to use it. It's really, really good for them. Uh, because there's no parent to actually say, wait a minute, what are you doing? Okay. And a lot of times the orphanages receive payment for that. So, you know, it's wow. all good. We, we mean, medical ethics is the biggest oxymoron there is. So, yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's pretty okay. crazy. All right, so if we... Um, just sort of recap on all that. Uh, I, I think the most important strategy we can adopt is to address that propaganda. The propaganda that's driving people to go out there and say, look, we need compulsory vaccination, we need to get rid of these dirty anti-vaxxers and get rid of the kids. To address it, I mean, they're doing that out of fear. Mm-hmm. We need to address the things that are making them fearful. Um, so we need... First and foremost, before we talk about the terrible harms that are being caused by vaccination, I mean, that comes in later, but first and foremost, we need to address their fears. And so we need to tell them that, uh, and show them that these diseases were vanquished before vaccines came along. And, and other diseases were vanquished at the same time, other diseases that never had a vaccine. Right. So we need to show them in a nutshell, the irrelevance of vaccination in the demise of these diseases. Um, and there'll be all sorts of arguments they'll make. They'll say, well, what about the cases? You know, you're only talking about the deaths. And, and you might have to get your head around those arguments a bit. There's too much to talk about right now. But basically, we don't know the number of cases of these diseases. It's all uh, such loose data. I mean, no one has ever counted the incidence of measles. No one ever could. No. No one's ever counted it. All we have are notifications, which are um, when doctors over the, throughout history have been inclined to report cases of measles. And that's so subject to bias oh. and to error as well. Shopping. I wrote about that that links in my book. Mm. Um, and your book is fooling ourselves on the fundamental value of vaccines. And these graphs are all taken from your book. One thing that I get from a lot of people who are um, on the anti-choice camp is that these graphs are in an anti-vaccination book, so why should we trust them? Where did you get the information from to plot these graphs? It's all government data. That's right. Yeah, from the Department of Health. Yeah, and you presented these graphs to the government, and if they had any problems with it, they would have said to you, no, you can't use these graphs because they're wrong. They but never I did that. I wrote, I wrote to them and asked them that mm-hmm. yeah, before I published Yeah. Um, th- this is legitimate data. Yeah. Make, make no mistake there. This is legitimate data. It's the only data on deaths. You won't find different data. There are some discrepancies between the, the historical um, uh, document that I used, which was the Cumston document. Uh, it was the Director General of the Department of Health. <laughs> some slight discrepancies between his data and the Commonwealth yearbooks. That's because uh, the yearbooks was a little bit more up to date. Right. Um, sometimes it can take several years before a death is counted and the earlier data is not up to date. Mm. But this is the only data. So the, the death rates did decline and this is the picture that's all over the world. I, I show Australian data. Have a look at dissolving illusions. Yes. Um, they've got data from other parts of the world and there are other sources of data too. And they all tell the same yeah. story. These diseases declined well before the vaccines came along. Yes, and these graphs are repeated in every country. Um, who's that guy, Willie uh, Obi- 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 Swain, I forget his name. He was a Canadian 
Um, Raymond. Raymond Obi. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Can't pronounce it. Sorry, Raymond. But he's he worked with the World Health Organization, and he has graphs that are plotted exactly like yours, and it shows the same information. Um, you know, it's it's. It's one thing to say, I'm going to vaccinate my child, and because the diseases are so deadly and have been killing so many people, um, we have to continue vaccinating. But you're right. If we can show people that at the time the vaccines came in, those deaths had already declined to basically almost zero, um, then we have to question why did we even start using the vaccine. Measles is the, the one that I really... Um, point to the most because in the United States and I think in Australia it's similar there have been a 99.96% decline in deaths before by the time the vaccine came in so why did we even start using this vaccine why would we use a vaccine against a disease that was so benign hmm. by the time the vaccine came in well it was never part of the propaganda before the vaccine came mm -hmm. in to say hey this has already practically disappeared that was never part of the the, the story that mm -hmm. wanted, that that those promoting the vaccine wanted to tell. No. So that's What's why no one pulled business. it up. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, it. So that's point number one. These diseases largely disappeared, um, or not so much disappeared, but uh, they became not a problem mm. before vaccines were brought in to, to combat them. Um, then smallpox and polio. Well, smallpox is a similar story, except the vaccine was introduced earlier when it was still a problem. But uh, data from other infectious diseases showed that they declined at the same time as smallpox mm -hmm. declined. And so that, that there's no decent case to make for the smallpox vaccine. Right. Then we have polio. Well, you know, we have just as much paralysis. But as far as we can see, I mean, there's not good data on it, but as far as we can see, there's just as much... Uh, acute flaccid paralysis around now as there was before the polio vaccine came in. All we've done is change the amount of it that we call polio. Right. That's all we've done. And so once you can explain that to people in just a few easy sentences and maybe show them a few graphs, uh, you can then say, you know, and on top of that, they're causing massive problems. Mm. I believe they're causing a lot of problems, autism, etc., etc. Um, and people can see then that they may not have to fear not vaccinating. Mm. There's a series of articles that have just appeared in the mainstream media based on a government study. Over the last couple of weeks, it's actually been reported, which I'm really surprised about, and it's saying that the polio vaccine may be causing more paralysis now than wild polio. So they're actually starting to admit that. They're not saying it's causing polio. They're saying it's causing paralysis. But, you know, it's, it's like with the influenza vaccine, where they say that the influenza vaccine can't cause flu, but it causes flu-like symptoms. So, you know, it's all how you describe it. It's all how you name it. But the fact is that you're trying to prevent flu-like symptoms when you vaccinate someone against the flu, and you're trying to prevent paralysis when you're vaccinating someone against polio. And if the vaccine is causing more paralysis than the wild virus is doing in the environment, then you have a total failure. And not only do you have a failure, you have a counterproductive failure. Um, so it's it's really interesting that um, that we have this disconnect with reality because of fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is such an overwhelming emotion for so many people. It turns off their logical thinking brain. Mm -hmm. And so they're no longer able to see, wait a second, this may be causing more harm than good. And we have all this information to show it wasn't necessary in the first place. All they're saying is, polio, 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 I'm terrified of polio, this vaccine is supposed to cure it or prevent it, and that's what I want to do. Um, so, yeah. It, it, it's, the fear is the main motivator, and it's the main motivator for everybody, mm -hmm. really. Uh, we are emotional creatures. We are. Whether we like to think we're rational or not, I mean, we, you can line up a hundred scientists there in their white coats and they might all say, I'm rational. But no, they're 90% they're emotion. Mm -hmm. 
um, just like the rest of us. Yeah. And so we do act on fear. Fear is one of the strongest emotions, and we make a lot of our decisions based on fear. So if we fear disease and we, we swallow the propaganda that these, this tool will take away that disease, then we will tend to fight you know, and, and use that tool and, and, and try to get everyone else to use that tool. But if we can take that fear away, then people won't have the same uh, amount of reason to, to want to push vaccines so much. And we've got to be careful we don't try and fight fear with fear. Yes, we, I agree. We have to, to take the wind out of the sails of the fear they already have and then say, look, there are things to fear as well mm -hmm. if you go and get the needle. Now, I don't want to battle fear with fear, but... You need to be aware of this. Edu education is the best way to combat fear because lack of education or lack of information, I mean, even when you look at bigotry, uh, it's always the other that we're fearing. And that's what the government and the media are using right now. They are trying to make people who have vaccinated already, who should be protected, fearful of the other of the unvaccinated child, of the family that's not vaccinating. We are spreading disease. We are dangerous. And that's what the government is trying to spread. And the only way, I think, to, to oppose that is by showing very clearly um, the information that you've shown here and the real facts. And, and that's one of the really wonderful things of the documentary film Vax 2 that we showed, we're showing all over the country now, is that, yes, in the very beginning there's a very emotional um, series of, of films, of, of interviews with parents who have lost children to vaccines, who have children who are permanently injured, and it's incredibly sad and it's very real. But at the end of the film, they show unvaccinated children. And this is something that I think most people in society don't ever get to see because so many of us are vaccinated. And they have Polly Tommy showing this group of people with children around the Vax bus. And she says, look at this, a group of children who are unvaccinated and alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they interview all these families of children who are unvaccinated who are incredibly healthy. No ear infections, no autism, no ADD, no ADHD. And I think that showing that is also a really important thing because people do have this idea in their heads that if you don't vaccinate, your child's going to die. It's not an idea in their heads. Doctors are openly telling parents that you are signing this child's death certificate if you don't vaccinate. So your information and the ability to actually see real life uh, unvaccinated children, I think is a great way to combat that fear as well. So, yeah. Uh, just a reminder to everyone, you can go onto my website to get all the graphs, doesn't cost anything, download all the graphs, uh, you can download printable versions of them, you can download the data that I plotted them from, um, yeah. plus key talking point data points, um, yeah, vaccinationdilemma.com. That's it. And, and unlike the government, your data is available openly. You have to actually go jump through a lot of hoops to get this data from the government, didn't you? It wasn't visible, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, you, if you tell someone, okay, the, death, the deaths from each disease each year is in each Commonwealth yearbook, I mean, that means people have got to look up how many yearbooks to get the data and plot it. That's what I had to do. And... Ironically, just as uh, in between my first book and my second book, um, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare put out, they've done some great work, uh, world first work, where they've collated the data and actually put out um, what they call groom books, which are Terrible name. <laughs> general record of incidents of mortality. Um, it's pretty great. For all sorts of conditions. So you can. You can go on their website and look up the, the mortality rates over the years in graph format mm. uh, for various conditions. And if you're, the condition you're interested in isn't listed, you can write to them and ask. And uh, uh, they may charge, charge some money for a special request. 
But yeah, it's it's not something that you can just go to their website and say, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, how many deaths from this disease, how many deaths from that disease. I mean, the NNDSS, the National Notifiable Diseases Surveillance System, I think it's called, they have incidence figures since 1991, which may or may not be accurate. Notification. They're not notifications. <laughs> Sorry, I know, I keep confusing those two words. Notifications are not incidents. So, but as far as deaths go, that information is not easy to find, and it should be. It really should be. But even if they had... The death figures, again, you wouldn't necessarily know if they were accurate, and they haven't no. been kept in a central database that you can just go to and find. So that's why your graphs are so important, and why I hope that you will actually update the graphs to more recent years, too, when you're in your spare time. In my spare time. <laughs> I'll have to do another edition of the book, I think, one day. Yeah, that would be good. In my spare time. In your spare time, which you don't have, I know. So, um, I know that this has been an incredibly frustrating um, experience for the people who are watching this live. If I cannot get this working properly once I upload it, we're going to have to get Greg to sit down again, go to someplace with a better internet connection, and do another interview because this information is so important and it really, really needs to be known by everyone. So, Greg, um, if we can't get this working, I'm going to have to get you back on. I'm That's sorry. Deal. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you everyone for watching and fingers crossed that when I end this, we will be able to get it in better quality on the website because it was recorded on my iPad. So fingers crossed this will work. Until, oh, I forgot to say, we are having a special under the wire in within the next two or three days. I don't have the exact date with Taylor Winterstein on uh, measles in Samoa. So please stay tuned for that. We're going to have up-to-date information on those child deaths in Samoa. Uh, Taylor has been uh, following this very closely. Tay's Way is her Facebook page and she's got a lot of information on there and we're going to break down the lies and the propaganda that have been told about that um, situation as well. So um, within the next few days I will be putting this up on the ABN website so you'll know. Thank you again for joining us on Under the Wire and have a great weekend. Thanks.